0: Good morning, everyone. There's not a place I would rather be on this side of eternity than right here this morning with all of you. And Tim threw me a threw me a curveball the other day, and I'm not even going to address it yet. I'm going to save it for another time because we've got stuff to do so y'all can just hold on to that one and wait um, i <laughs> I am always excited to be with y'all and it really is a it really is a wonder i if y'all are like me, it was a little easier this morning to wake up. I'm slowly adjusting. I think by next week we'll all be back on track. and. And, and normal. Um, one thing that I did notice over the spring break week, it's a great time where, you know, we kind of get to recharge and, and break our routines a little bit. Um, always kind of ready for those routines to be back. But as I was looking, it seemed like a lot of our kids from the area got to go on big trips. Um, a lot of them went to Washington, D.C., and I saw some pictures from different uh, memorials that they got to see. That's a part of the world that's just chock full of memorials. And uh, I, I looked at that and I thought, it, it sure is good to be reminded, isn't it? I mean, we're a people who are quick to forget. We're, we're quick to forget really important things, in a sense. And so, so we've surrounded ourselves with little markers, things to help us remember, things to, things to remind us. I want to draw your attention back to the verse that we opened our worship service with, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4, and read it together. Now, I would remind you, For the next four weeks, we're kind of headed towards Easter. So many around us are going to be celebrating the resurrection of Jesus on that day, and so we're getting a little bit of a running head start to head in that same direction. You know, historically, we've had a little bit of pushback against uh, celebrating Easter in the Churches of Christ, and I certainly believe the biblical pattern is to celebrate and remember every Sunday through the Lord's Supper. I mean, that is a, a rhythm that I'm thankful for, a, a powerful rhythm that I think is so important. But that said, the, the resurrection of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus is the culmination of the gospel. Paul said the gospel was of first importance. And so as we get this running head start and head towards Easter Sunday, we're going we're to back up and we're going to look at all of it. Today we're going to start with the crucifixion in Matthew chapter 27. And I would encourage you to open your Bibles there right now. And in the weeks that follow, we're going we're gonna to go through the, the death and the burial and then end on the resurrection. So we're going to start with our text this morning, Matthew chapter 27, looking at the crucifixion of Jesus. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, and they compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priest with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He he saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God, and the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. As I approach a difficult text like this in my studies, one of the first questions I ask myself is, what do we, what do we see here? What do we see? We see a, a, a lot of uh, reference back to the Old Testament, this pattern of going outside the camp that mirrors the Old Testament sacrifice for sin. As we step through the text, we see prophecies are are being fulfilled, and that's certainly notable. There's some things in this text that are noticeably missing as well. For instance, it mentions that he's crucified, but it doesn't say much about the horrendous nature of the crucifixion which is usually what we talk about in sermons like this. It's just assumed in the text. Matthew assumes that the writers know the horrors of the crucifixion, that it was designed for physical and psychological suffering. This was more than simply death. It was a drawn-out death process that gave everyone a chance to see this criminal writhing in pain, gave them a chance to hurl their last insults at them as they took their final breaths and parted from this earth. But the text doesn't really talk a lot about crucifixion itself. Some of the most marked observations from the text, in fact, come from through the eyes of of those who were around him. Matthew talks about these passerbys who derided him. He talks about the chief priest and the scribes and the elders, and the text tells us that they mocked him. We even see that the crucified thieves... These men being put to death on either side of him for actual crimes somehow mustered the energy to revile him in the same way as those around him. It makes me wonder if the beating that Jesus received was atypical. I mean, these, these men, I don't think Jesus probably had the energy for that type of mocking, yet these men being crucified beside him could muster the energy to, to spit venom in the face of Jesus. As I look through the text, I see other things like the irony That every single one of the things that they reviled him for had a tinge of truth to it. They called him the king of the Jews. They made fun of him for it, but the truth was he was the king of the Jews. He was the king of the world. They talked about, made fun of him for this statement about destroying and rebuilding the temple in three days. But the truth is, Jesus was just about to do that. They told him to come down from the cross, but he was going to come down from the cross in a sense, just in a way no one could imagine They made fun of him, saying he cannot save himself. But the truth was, Jesus was about to save the entire world. He's king of Israel, they said. And the truth was, he was. And had he come down, they still wouldn't have believed him. Let God deliver him now if he desires him, they said. But Jesus trusted in God, and the fact that God desired him is what made his sacrifice so powerful. As I look at the, the, core, the core motivators for their abuse, it's as if they, they put him up on that cross and they took this opportunity to shout out to everyone, like, isn't it obvious now the false claims that this man had made? Isn't it obvious that the things that he claimed are not true? If he was the Son of God, if he was deity the way that he said he was, he would never find himself in this situation. Deity would never be treated this way. Jesus, you obviously don't have the the powerful connections that you claimed you had while you walked this earth. In fact, at the essence, what they were saying, especially at the end, is this. You aren't loved by God. God doesn't love you enough to take you down from this cross. Can you imagine in the addition to the physical pain of having your back beaten raw and then nailed to a rough board, being suspended by holes in your wrist while your lungs filled with fluid and you slowly drowned to death, naked and in front of everyone? Can you imagine, in addition to that, knowing you were innocent? Knowing everything that they said was was blatantly false. Can you imagine listening to them mock you with statements that were so untrue? Can you imagine being surrounded by people who would believe things like they said? And can you imagine having the power in your fingertips to stop it at any given moment? And yet still, under the circumstances like we just read, choosing not to. You know there were definitely elements of Old Testament sacrifice, but there's so much more happening here. Jesus spilled his lifeblood, yes, but but he died an even deeper death. He spilled a different type of blood. His. His pride, His personhood, the the rights that a human should have. Jesus' dignity was nailed to the cross too, and and that died as well in this moment. You know, we could all admit, we we all know that there are things worse than death. Things that we would never allow to happen. Even when our aversion to death, we, we see that it's preferred at times. As we begin to lose our autonomy and our personhood and, and, and suffering wells its head, uh, the suffering of deteriorating health or the circumstances that we're in, we, we understand that there's a time when it's better to move on. We certainly wrestle with and understand that the death is sometimes a, a welcome gift. And yet in this moment, Jesus sat silent, not lifting a finger, while he absorbed unimaginable atrocities that were far worse than death itself. And I think that it's important. I think it's important because Matthew, Matthew draws our attention to it. In fact, Matthew exerts very little energy explaining the misery of the cross through the eyes of Jesus. Most of Matthew's imagery relays the misery of the cross through the eyes of others around him through the eyes of universal rejection, despise, disgust, and disdain. I think of Psalm 22, 6 through 8. But I'm a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me, they make mouths at me, they wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord, let him deliver him, let him rescue him, for he delights in him. As I look at this text, really, really the question that that comes to the surface, the question that I found myself asking over and over again as I studied is, is this one why, why did it have to be this way? I'm not simply asking why Jesus had to die, I'm asking why Jesus had to die like this. And we look back in the Old Testament and we see sacrifices. We know that Jesus was a, a sacrifice that, that, in a sense, mirrored those, but those sacrifices weren't cruel. They didn't involve the suffering that we see here. Why wasn't it simply enough to have Jesus beheaded? I mean, under the same Roman government just a couple of years earlier, John the Baptist had suffered that fate. Why couldn't Jesus have been beheaded? Why the cross? Why did the people in Matthew 27:22 call for it? I mean, Pilate says to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called the Christ? And they all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. Why was death not enough? Why did there have to be suffering and humiliation and injustice? Why did it have to be like this, where everything seems so wrong and so harsh and so painful? You, Matthew certainly tells us what happened. But he doesn't tell us why. And so to answer that question, I think we have to take a step back and, and look in some other places. And while there are certainly, I'm sure, a lot of reasons, there are two reasons, two big reasons that I want to talk about today. Our sins require an appropriate sacrifice. An appropriate sacrifice is a perfect sacrifice. And I want to take each of these in turn. So let's start by looking at the elements of an appropriate sacrifice. You know, I think if we were really honest and we looked with our, at ourselves at not just our sin, well, our sin, but sin in general, we would look and see that there is an enormous amount of human suffering caused by sin. So much in so many places. And as I look at Jesus' sacrifice, it seems that this was the only way that sin could be propitiated, that sin could be paid for, that that the price could be paid. If you think about it, would it be okay? How would you feel if someone who had committed murder was given a five-minute timeout like a toddler for their crime? You wouldn't feel very good about that. In fact, if you turn on the TV, you will see that there's enormous debate in our society right now. The, our justice system is tasked with matching the punishment to the crime. And so over and over again, we see these examples of people whose innocence or guilt isn't in doubt, but there's tremendous uproar when our culture feels like the punishment doesn't match the crime. It's important that those two things go hand in hand. We read leading up to the Lord's Supper from Isaiah 53, and I want to read again an excerpt from that, verses 4 through 6. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Romans 3:23 through 25 says for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, all of us. We're justified by His grace as a gift, and this happens through what? Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood. In other words, his blood is what it took to appease God. His blood is what it took to pay the price. His blood, the the blood of Jesus, this type of suffering is what matched the crime. Hebrews 13, 12 says, So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. His suffering was indeed necessary because it's what made the sacrifice appropriately match the magnitude of our sin. But more than just matching the magnitude of our sin, part of what made it appropriate was that it was a perfect sacrifice. And our sins necessitated a perfect sacrifice. You know, a lot of our college students, uh, some of our high school students, have looming in the near future, and I hate to remind you all of this, but there are final exams in a couple of months. And what are final exams? Final exams are the culmination of all you have learned. It's a time to to test your ability and to recall and work with the skill sets that you have developed in the classroom. And as I look at Jesus' final test at the cross, I think there's an element of that that's true. There's an element of Jesus being, being put to the test but I think there's something deeper happening as well. I think what we see is more than just a test for Jesus. What we see here in the cross is the final forming lesson, the final thing that had to happen to him to finish the process of molding him into a sacrifice that was exactly perfect, that, 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 was, that was perfectly able of covering our sins. This is more like the execution of an event that he had been preparing for. It put him to the test in a way that nothing else could, but it also gave him that last necessary experience where he could claim absolute obedience and absolute empathy, which made his sacrifice different than any one that had ever been given. To make that point, I turn to Hebrews. In Hebrews 2.10, we read this. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. That he would make him perfect through suffering. So there was something about this, this additional element of the sacrifice that perfected Jesus. We go on to read in Hebrews two sixteen through 18 For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. To make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So we see that his suffering helped make him perfect, but his suffering also helps him connect with us. It propitiates, it appeases the offended party's wrath. And then we see in Hebrews 5, 8-10, Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So we see that his suffering taught him obedience. And being made perfect, the text tells us, he became the source of eternal salvation. You see, perfection... And obedience and suffering very much go hand in hand. We basically see two elements of a perfect sacrifice here. Absolute obedience and absolute empathy. Absolute obedience. He was perfected when his obedience had been pushed to the limit of human possibility. You know, I think his suffering was his greatest and last temptation. His ability to stop it at any moment meant he was exercising great restraint. Would he have the, the obedience and the humility to make it through, we might ask ourselves. And this draws me back to this, this, um, this grand scene that unfolded at the beginning of Job. Do you remember that? When, when Satan came in from roaming the earth and he's having this conversation with God and, and God asks him, well, have you considered my servant Job? And, and, and Satan looks at him and he has this accusation against him. In Job 1, 9-11, Satan answers the Lord and says, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land, but stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to his face. You know, we, we feel this. We, we look at someone, and if it seems like they are in a special position, if they have a, a hedge put around them, that we don't necessarily want to give them credit for making the decisions that they've made. So if it appears that someone has been handed a, a plate that, that's better than yours, um, then it seems like, well, maybe had they been dealt this hand, had they been dealt this hand that I have, they wouldn't be responding so faithfully. There's something different about me. Some of you may feel this way a little bit towards Jesus. I've caught myself wondering this, have you? Well, if I was the son of God and I knew it, if I could walk around and do miracles, wouldn't it be easier to follow God and be faithful? Wouldn't I make different decisions than I make now? You know, the story continues to unfold. In Job chapter 2, uh, Satan goes out and, and he carries terrible atrocities out towards Job, but he, he doesn't harm his body. And in chapter 2, he comes back and they have this same conversation again. And Satan has another charge. He answers the Lord and says, Skin for skin, all that a man has, he'll give for his life. But, but now stretch out your hand and touch his bones and flesh and he'll curse you to his face. And we see again that, that Job was, was faithful despite that being happened. But, but we look at this and it's like as if as if it wasn't enough, were, were he allowed to, to go without suffering? Were Jesus allowed to go out without suffering? How would we feel when we suffer? We would think that we shouldered something impossible. Something that Jesus didn't have to take on. And we would feel like we had permission to act differently when our flesh and bone were affected. But as we walk up to this moment at the cross and we see Jesus and we see Him resolute in the face of suffering, we see Him stand firm, we see Jesus do something that I'm not sure any of us could. We see Jesus sit silent in the face of an attack on His dignity. We see Jesus holding back every ounce of power that He had to stop it. We see Jesus holding back every ounce of power He had to get retribution. And so the text in Hebrews chapter 4, 15 through 16 rings now so true. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You see, Jesus was tempted in every respect as we are. We required a perfect sacrifice, and he wasn't perfect until he had shared in it all. He was perfected when his experience had pushed him into every nook and cranny of the possible human experience. So I ask next, why does this matter? Why do we need to see and understand this element? Well, I believe as we see the perfect obedience modeled in Christ, it gives us confidence that it's possible. When we see righteous living as difficult, we can understand that we have a a Savior who relates to us. When sinful required to pay the price for our sin, death was not enough. Suffering was necessary. And in the cross, we see glimpses of hell itself. Sin required the Son of God unjustly tortured and humiliated to pay for it. Hebrews 2, 1-3 reads, "'Therefore we must pay closer attention "'to what we've heard, lest we drift away. "'For since the message declared by angels "'proved to be reliable, "'and every transgression or disobedience "'received a just retribution, "'how shall we escape "'if we neglect such a great salvation?' "'Every transgression or disobedience "'was going to receive a just retribution. "'How shall we escape "'if we neglect such a great salvation?' This helps us to understand the magnitude of grace. As we look at the cross, we see how much he loves us. And that should cause the playing field to be leveled. And this is where I think it impacts us in a way that manifests itself in word and action. Because you see, we can look out at the world and we can understand and see through the cross that sin has been covered. And so as we look at ourselves, you have to ask, how can I quarrel with another human being knowing that God did this for us? How can we hate another human when God did this for them? How can we accuse God of injustice when he went through this for us? How can we, in light of what we see, continue to to spit venom from our mouths out into the world? The cross, if anything, should make us stop and cover our eyes and cover our mouths and weep at our sin and, and say thank you with a profound, overflowing gratitude because it's in the cross that we see clearly our ugliness. And it's in the cross that we see clearly his beauty. In fact, I would say it's in the cross that our ugliness is being put to death. And his beauty is given life. I want to read it again, Matthew 27, 32 through 44. As they went out, they found a man of sirens, Simon by name. And they compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified Him, they divided His garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over Him there, and over His head they put the charge against Him which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with Him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided Him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross." So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I'm the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him the same way. But he stayed. He stayed right where he was for you and for me. And through the process of his suffering, he became and demonstrated perfection. May we always be near the cross. Jesus did this for you. God did this to him for you. You know, the miracle of the resurrection began with a very non-miraculous human suffering that Jesus had to endure There was no miracle that held him on the cross, only obedience, perfect obedience. Our hope is in the resurrection. Our forgiveness is in his death, but our connection is in his suffering. There is not a thing that you can experience that he can't understand. There's not a sin that you can commit that he can't forgive. The cross connects Jesus to you, and it's both paradoxically ugly and beautiful at the same time, just like us. If you're not a follower of Christ, my prayer is that the cross helps you see how ugly sin is and how beautiful our Savior is. My prayer is that the cross helps you see in the example of Christ that there is a better way. My prayer is that today you will choose to put your faith in him. And if you aren't yet convinced, then I would invite you back because we have three more weeks of this story to unpack. I want to extend an invitation at this time. Technically, the invitation is always open. We would always love to study Scripture with you. The waters are always ready to baptize. We would love to pray and support you. So if a public response doesn't fit your personality or needs, then you can call us at any time. But it could be, it could be that right now this morning, but there's someone under the sound of my voice that needs help. Someone that knows that you need to make a change. Someone that knows that you need to make a change surrounded by a community of people to rally behind you and walk with you. And if that's you, I would encourage you not to delay. Don't put it off. We won't let you walk the aisle alone. We invite you to come forward as we stand and sing.